0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We start with a boring event in the days of the coalition government a few years ago. I'm promising you may think I have ironing to do, but stick with us. David Cameron's announcement of support for something called supply chain finance has turned out to be a very big story indeed.
1: Greensill's whole product and offering dovetailed nicely with the aims of the then-conservative-led government, which was to help small and medium-sized businesses after the recession.
0: The scheme would allow more rapid central payment to pharmacies dispensing NHS prescriptions. But who exactly was the man sitting two seats
1: down from the Prime Minister? Some servants were bewildered and they didn't know exactly why he was there. Was he there to help the taxpayer? Was he there to help Citigroup, his bank where he'd been um, managing director in charge of supply chain finance? Or was he there to help himself, having just founded his own supply chain finance company? And how did that man come to occupy a seat at the
0: heart of government pitching a financial scheme to departments, many of whom thought it was nuts. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, David Cameron and the Toxic Banker, Part One, The Amazing Rise of Lex Greensill.
1: I mean the Sunday Times has a wonderful tradition of mischievous investigative journalism and there's been plenty to run out over the last year so if people are getting lawyers involved we're probably doing our jobs right.
0: Gabriel Pogrand is the Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent and for the past two weeks a new story of his has led to calls for an inquiry
1: into the actions of the former Prime Minister David Cameron. I'm actually going to open up my WhatsApp web and read out something which a source texted me. I said to a friend
0: the other day, if I ever get a call from you about a story on me, I'll just give up and leave the country.
1: Tears of joy emoji. Now, one of the things that's really satisfying
0: about this is that this is a case of one story leading to another, isn't it?
1: The joy of this story is just how many big institutions in public life it touches. This asks huge questions of the political establishment, of the civil service, of... The regulators of the big banks, of David Cameron, of Australian bank you've never heard of, who somehow inveigled his way into Whitehall, of the former head of the civil service. We've got a bit of Mohammed bin Salman. There's almost every angle. I mean, I'm just waiting for Prince Andrew to get involved somehow. But I mean, it is just, it's glorious and it's been great fun. And it's also quite a troubling story as well. The other thing about it, Gabriel, I mean, just in straight story structure terms is...
0: It's also a classic case of you run one story and then somebody gets in touch with
1: you and it gets bigger. Well, there was this line in my first story. It said something along the lines of ministers and civil servants are facing questions about how a young banker managed to get such extensive access to the heart of Whitehall. I mean, a number of people got in touch with me after that story, but one of them was somebody who said, well, I've actually got an answer for you. We should chat, and since then, we've been able to answer the question of how Lex Greensill schmoozed and seduced his way into the heart of the political world to enrich himself and his friends. So who
0: was the schmoozer and seducer who Gabriel keeps mentioning? This down-under banker you've never heard
1: of. Lex Greensill is a 44-year-old... Australian businessman and banker who founded an eponymous financial services company, Greensill Capital, and basically came out of nowhere around 10 years ago. He is a son of a sugarcane and melon farming family. He was born in a city called Bundaberg in Queensland, in northeast Australia. He faced serious poverty growing up, and in particular, around the time he was graduating from school his parents, because of a bad harvest, didn't receive payments from supermarkets and he ended up not being able to go to university. He studied law by correspondence. And as he told it, I mean, everybody has their own mythology. His mythology was that that experience engendered this deep-lying appreciation for the importance of small businesses, small business people getting paid on time. And Greensill, in his early 20s, moved to the UK, got an MBA, ended up working for JP Morgan and then Citigroup, two big Wall Street banks, their UK offices. Then in 2011, he founded his own company whose defining mission was to put right the aforementioned injustice faced by um, people who live hand to mouth on money paid to them by bigger companies further upstream in a supply chain. And His big idea or his big project, I mean, he used quite messianic language to describe it, talked about democratising finance, helping the little guy. It was something called, and David, I did say we would only use this phrase once, so I'm going to probably be sparing with it. It's called supply chain finance. Look, I wish I could tell you that you don't need
0: to know what supply chain finance is, but you really do. So Gabriel is going to tell us
1: simply. lot of businesses, there are a lot of delays in small businesses getting paid on time. What supply chain finance is, is a bank inserts itself between a supplier and a customer. And effectively, the supplier is paid immediately by the bank. And then the bank um, does this for a fee and gets reimbursed by the customer further down the line. Let's take Greensill's own family. Say you're a a sugar cane or a melon farmer. You sell your melons to a big supermarket in Australia. That supermarket often takes ages. What Greensill's company would do would he would pay the farmer upfront, immediately in full for a fee. And then when the supermarket pays in due course, they'll get the money back from them. So it's effectively a loan scheme. Okay, can I just row back for a
0: moment? Because it's not immediately clear to me. How does the company which pays the original company before the buying company
1: gets around to paying them. How does it make its money? Who is it making its money from? The middleman makes the money by saying to the person who's getting the payment up front, we're providing you the service of giving your cash now rather than later. And we'll do that for a small fee. And typically, by the way, Supply chain finance, it's very slender margins. I mean, it is kind of 0.05%. It's the sort of thing which massive banks can do quite easily. They say, we're happy to pay millions or billions up front, and all we're asking for is a tiny sliver of that. And over time, you can make decent money from it. Okay. So he's got this idea and it's obvious
0: why he has it given the background that he has come from and he thinks that he can make it work to everybody's benefit really it's kind of win-win situation the way he seems
1: to describe it right gabriel uh, everybody's a winner it's actually quite interesting that phrase you just use win-win david cameron when he unveiled the government's support for supply chain finance a year and a half after greensville had arrived in whitehall he used that very phrase win-win and i mean effectively Greensill's whole product and offering dovetailed nicely with the aims of the then-Conservative-led government, which was to help small and medium-sized businesses after the recession. And yeah, on the face of it, it looks pretty win-win. You help small businesses that live off the payment of their invoices by paying them swiftly, and you take a small amount on top. Who loses out? Ostensibly, nobody. And... This form of doing business, by the way, has existed for a long time. Greensill often wrapped it in jargon and snazzy language. It's been around for a time, and on the face of it, it shouldn't be a particularly risky way of doing things.
0: Greensill has, prior to going to number 10, he has come across Jeremy Haywood. I think we'd better at this point explain who Jeremy Haywood was and how he met Greensill and what Haywood then goes on
1: to do. So Jeremy Haywood was kind of, regarded by many as having been the greatest civil servant of his generation. He died three years ago of lung cancer, so unfortunately he's not been around to answer questions on his involvement in this. But what we know is that Hayward, was Cabinet Secretary, he was Downing Street Permanent Secretary as well as Chief of Staff. That's three of the most senior
0: roles in the British civil service. Over the course of his almost 40 years in public harness,
1: he worked directly with four prime ministers. At his funeral, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Theresa May, David Cameron, Nick Clay, they're all there. So many major politicians over the course of our recent history have described him as an invaluable asset. The civil servant who said yes, the man with the ideas and intellectual imagination to make things happen. Friend or foe, you know, everybody respected his incredible influence. And actually, there's this glorious passage from a book by Matthew de Ancona which I'm just going to read to you to give you a sense of Jeremy Hayward's power and influence in Whitehall. He quotes Nick Pearce, the former head of the Number 10 Policy Unit, who said, if we had a written constitution in this country, it would have to say something like, notwithstanding the fact that Jeremy Hayward will always be at the centre of power, we are free and equal citizens, which is just a lovely encapsulation of what Hayward represented. I mean, many people saw him as the man who really ran Britain, And he came into contact with Greensill during a stint in the private sector. He spent about three years at Morgan Stanley before returning to help Gordon Brown on the eve of the financial crisis. And it was there that he met this young buck from Australia who had big ideas about supply chain finance.
0: And it's clear, isn't it, that it's at this point that Hayward becomes absolutely convinced that supply chain finance, as outlined by Seal, is a great idea.
1: He speaks to people who knew Jeremy Hayward, and they say that, I don't want to say it's an Achilles heel, because many people saw it as a good thing. He really liked bringing people into government from the outside who had experience from other worlds. Could have been business, it could have been banking, could have been music or the arts. I do get the impression he had a particular soft spot from people from the financial world. He had this kind of coterie of very successful, very wealthy business people. And Greensill was younger than him, but nevertheless, managed to persuade Hayward of the virtue of his offering. And it was therefore in 2011 that Hayward sends this amazing email to civil servants saying that, I think he says, it's a subject of huge frustration, or it's a matter of huge frustration that we are unable to take advantage of ideas such as those being advocated by Greensill. He uses the phrase that the government is leaving, quote, free money on the table. And he says this to people in the Cabinet Office who were responsible for reforming the civil service at the time or managing the Cabinet Office. He says, we need to get this guy in. He's currently at Citigroup, but that shouldn't matter. He'll happily take a modestly remunerated role here as a matter of priority I want to get him around Whitehall meeting departments evangelising supply chain finance and putting this idea forward so that government departments can roll it out in the way that they do things. And you can tell that he's saying this with some urgency because, and it's kind of classic civil servant, sleight of hand, he says we could set up some meetings before bringing in Francis Maud, who was a then cabinet office minister. So he's effectively saying we may wish to bounce ministers into backing this guy but at the very least let's get the show on the road I want Greensill in government I want him advising us in number 10
0: yeah I want it Here's a great idea I want it he's the guy to do it I want to bring him in it's a matter of frustration brackets to me personally actually that we can't do this kind of thing let's settle it all before we take it to the minister so we present the minister effectively with a great proposition he can't turn down you summed it up better than what I did that's exactly it now what happens then he wants to bring him in Does Maud say yes? How do the civil servants react to this? I think
1: that this was a time where a fair number of people from the outside world were coming into government. I mean, even Gordon Brown had had this obsession with bringing in business people to freshen up the Number 10 operation and bring in their own ideas. There was an acronym for it, GOATS, Government of All the Talents. Cameron did much the same. I mean, he even parachuted in Philip Green as an efficiency czar. So the notion of there being outside business people in government was not in any way unprecedented. Usually, these business people were the protégés of
0: politicians. But in Greensill's case, his champion was that indispensable civil servant,
1: Sir Jeremy Haywood. What was even more unusual was that he got such extensive and unfettered access to the biggest departments in government. So Greensill starts appearing in Whitehall in early 2012. And soon he is having meetings with the top officials in the Ministry of Defence, in the Department of Health, in the Treasury. And civil servants, according to a number of people I've spoken to, we spoke to about a dozen people for our first series on this, as well as according to the emails themselves, civil servants were bewildered and they didn't know exactly why he was there. Was he there to help the taxpayer? Was he there to help Citigroup, his bank where he'd been... managing director in charge of supply chain finance or was he there to help himself having just founded his own supply chain finance company
0: his dragon's den pitch for supply
1: chain finance to be used in whitehall went like this the government is this enormous organization 64 billion pounds it spends on procurement every year and it's also a big sluggish and sclerotic bureaucracy and at a time when a lot of Small businesses that depend on government payouts are suffering, why don't we get banks to sit in the middle between government and its suppliers so that the bank can pay the supplier more quickly we'll get into why, as it happens, that was according to many ludicrous and inappropriate thing for the state to be doing, but that was his proposition, and it just wasn't clear on whose behalf he was advocating. I mean he often said it was to help small businesses, but civil servants detected that. He wasn't being explicit about which banks would be carrying this out and who would be profiting from these schemes. And there's this amazing memo from a Treasury civil servant called Catherine Zeng, who said that ahead of a meeting with Greensill, um, that he needed to be reined in and also that he needed to clarify why he was there because at the moment he seemed to be, quote, a semi-private sector agent selling various products to departments. And that is kind of the source of this confusion and angst. He was there. It wasn't clear on what basis. He had a team of civil servants who were loaned to him, and even in due course, a desk in a cabinet office. And yet nobody could ask the three-lettered question, which was, why? Ah, so in other words, what she's saying is, it's
0: not at all clear that he's not here for himself. Yeah. It's not at all clear that actually he's not here mostly to
1: benefit or
0: partially to benefit a scheme that he intends to
1: operate. I'm sort of woefully financially and numerically illiterate, so I'm going to try and offer an explanation as simple as the ones which I've benefited from to set out why this was inappropriate for government. But basically, supply chain finance is an effective mechanism in the private sector. But the question which many civil servants had was, the government has no cash flow problems. We can borrow at ultra-low interest rates. We can effectively print off money. Why do we need to get a bank to pay... suppliers? Why can't we as the government just pay more quickly? There have been many different attempts to get the government to pay its suppliers more rapidly. There was something called the Prompt Payment Charter, which was introduced under Gordon Brown, which said that government had to pay its suppliers or people who it dealt with within five days or so. It wasn't always the case that the government lived up to its word, but the notion that you need to bring in a private bank seemed a bit odd. And I mean, Greensill was kind of going around proposing using this scheme for all manner of things. He wanted to use supply chain finance to fund a new fleet of typhoon jets. He wanted to potentially use it in network rail to pay suppliers and contractors at the BBC. Um, He wanted to insert himself into the NHS. Practically every aspect of government, Greensill felt like he could benefit seemingly himself as well as the government, by inserting himself into these relationships. And he did quickly alight on one scheme, where he did manage to make progress despite opposition from civil servants, which was accelerating payments by the NHS to pharmacists. In a moment, how Greensill
0: was greenlit. To get to the heart of the stories like this one every day with The Times and The Sunday Times, subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This is a strange picture, isn't it? Greensill is there with the patronage of the most powerful civil servant of the lot – receiving a lot of pushback from the other civil servants, which is doubtless characterised by Haywood and others as typical civil service obscurantism and so on. Here comes the young dynamic person in and they all try to stop him. Despite their opposition, he gets a bit of the scheme
1: off the ground, but mostly doesn't. Mostly doesn't is a fair characterisation in light of the fact that he basically went to every big department in central government. I mean, we calculated that he went to 11 government departments or agencies. We spoke to a number of people who met him. Quite a few of them reflected on his love of willy-waving his personal wealth. Greensill we did go on to buy four private jets for his company. I mean, he kind of liked showboating, but also invoking his earthy agricultural heritage. And, I mean, people just felt a bit suspicious of him. A number of people felt like he's a bit of a snake oil salesman. And most departments just said... If we do want or do need to get swift payment to our suppliers, we will happily use other mechanisms for doing it. First and foremost among them, just creating more effective systems so that people get cash in hand directly from us rather than via a bank. Nevertheless, with Sir Jeremy's support, Lex Greenshill did find one
0: unbarred door at the Department of Health, the one marked pharmacies.
1: Think about every time that granny goes to a pharmacist to get some antibiotics prescribed by the NHS. That pharmacist gives granny her medication. It doesn't get paid, but it's free at the point of use or subsidised on the NHS. So what that pharmacist does at the end of every month or quarter or whatever it might be, bundles up all of their receipts and invoices. Used to be a case of physically bundling them up and sending them to the NHS. Then they go through them and then they reimburse you for the cost of that medicine. And what Greensill proposed to do was to pay those pharmacists in less than a week, rather than forcing those pharmacists to wait weeks or months for the NHS to pay them back. The proposal was that the bank carrying this out would get a small fee, and then the NHS would pay back the bank in due course. He was particularly tenacious and evangelical about this. And what we'd also discovered, which is kind of a fascinating insight into the nexus between business and government is that it was this idea that Citigroup itself had been lobbying for for months before Greensill had even appeared in Whitehall. The seed of this pharmacy scheme had been planted by Citigroup. Even its CEO met the cabinet office minister to lobby for this to happen. And it was kind of, again, wrapped in buzzwords, Citigroup would be delighted to help uh, the government (laughs) achieve its efficiency and reform (laughs) goals. Then Greensill rocks up, starts pitching it, and he manages to get traction.
0: Okay, so we have this subterranean, I say subterranean because I don't think any of us really knew about it at the time, battle going on in Whitehall, in which Greensill is partly victorious and so on. Let's get into David Cameron, who's Prime Minister at this time. How did Cameron get involved? And and I think the first thing to say, did, did he even know about it?
1: That is in and of itself a question which is disputed. Cameron's own spokesperson or team kind of briefing that Cameron didn't have many interactions with him during his time in number 10. But it was David Cameron who, when this scheme was successfully pushed through, announced it in number 10 to a group of business people and had his quote plastered on the government website describing it as a win-win. People say that Cameron was in the pocket of Hayward, or if Hayward proposed something, he'd do it. Jeremy Hayward had a lot of control over Cameron's red box, aka the list of things he was given to sign off every morning and evening. And I don't think anybody would suggest that it was Cameron who parachuted him in, and he probably wasn't aware of him up until the point that the rubber hit the road on this pharmacy scheme. But when it did, Cameron, who various ex-ministers say was a real sucker for a good-sounding scheme. He kind of proudly and happily fronted it and indeed sat two seats away from the enigmatic Australian banker when launching what became known as the Pharmacy Early Payment Scheme. So Cameron certainly came into contact with him, certainly in meetings with him in the run-up to the launch of this scheme. And it was from there that they clearly built a closer relationship.
0: But are you essentially saying that Greensill romanced Hayward and then Hayward romanced Cameron? That seems to be the most likely change of events, yes. So how did it come about? And this was one of the things that came out subsequent to the story. How did it come about that he had a desk and a number 10 business card? Not a a somewhere
1: else business card, a number 10 business card. He didn't only have a number 10 business card, but on that business card he had a secure number 10 email address as well as a phone number. This is uh, itself also subject of controversy now because he had a seat in the um, Economic and Domestic Affairs Secretariat of the Cabinet Office, which is kind of locus of a lot of power and decision-making in the Cabinet Office, which is the kind of formal centre of Whitehall. People say it was Hayward who gave him this desk and the whole operation. And I think there'd been a bit of hot potato among mandarins, none of whom particularly happened to want to house him in their department. And the cabinet office was Hayward's fiefdom. And so he managed to get him a little setup and a base from which to pitch his proposals across government. And it does seem as though Hayward was driving this. Cameron gets much more involved later on. Probably the most damaging aspect of this all is that civil servants did eventually say that they didn't think that supply chain finance should be the government's top priority, and they produced this report, which we've seen, in which they, even by the standards of civil service, were fairly damning. And what's been alleged to us by various sources is that this report was stripped of its author's names, Greensill's name was put on it, its conclusions were reversed to say that the government should be backing supply chain finance, and then it was put by somebody into David Cameron's red box for him to sign off. Oh, come on, Gabriel, that can't be true, can it? You say this, but then the whole story is so incredible. This random guy just being allowed to spend two years pitching things, funding air-to-air refueling jets to the MOD. I mean, the access he received, the sensitivity of the things he was allowed to discuss and learn about, and the fact that he had got this gig having been at the bank which wanted it to happen. I think there are stranger things in this story than that. We have the report in which the civil service says we think this is a bad idea, And we have the picture of Cameron and Greensill sitting next to each other announcing that very bad idea. So, I mean, something needs to have happened in the meantime. Just one quick thing uh, before
0: we then go on to the implementation uh, of it, what we know about it. As far as we know, who was paying
1: Greensill at this point? How was he existing? Well, the government says he wasn't paid in his role. And we know that he founded his business in 2011 and left Citigroup just before. So, At this time, it seems as though he's either paying himself or being paid by Citigroup. Right, but he's not being paid by the government. But on the other hand, he's working in government on a scheme
0: which would benefit him financially being paid by himself. Okay, let's talk about what happened in implementation. The first thing I suppose that people want to know is, insofar as supply chain finance was being implemented in government, and we've talked about the uh, pharmacies and so
1: on already. Who got the contract? So Cameron unveils a scheme in October, and there is no small print or announcement as to who will be carrying out this early payment scheme for pharmacies. It is only because of legal documentation subsequently sent to pharmacists that we know which bank was asked to carry it out we'll see how carefully you've been listening David I might challenge you to guess which bank was tasked with overseeing <laughs> the scheme I'm going to guess
0: it's not Matt West
1: um, <laughs> I'm going to go for Citigroup that demonstrates real literacy in the world of financial affairs you've got it all <laughs> in one Citigroup is asked to carry it out for me one of the most amazing aspects of this whole story is that there was no tender process or contract amazing but true
0: In the run-up to the launch of the pharmacy scheme, Greensill and his team were warned that there could be a legal challenge if the scheme wasn't put out to tender, because... You can't just
1: gift a private sector financial institution a scheme which you've come up with, having worked for that bank months before. Even if you haven't worked for the bank, you can't just hand it to them, you need to put this out to tender. That just never happened. I actually spent 72 hours last week trying to extract an answer from government as to whether there was any contract at all or precisely what arrangement was used to hand this to City. It seems that there were some fairly secretive lines of communication and indeed financing that were established between the government and the big banks in the wake of the financial crisis. And there was some existing arrangement or contract between City and Her Majesty's government which was used to kind of fold this scheme into existence. But there's certainly nothing published about it. Um, The government hasn't told me so far how it all happened. And Citigroup managed to run it on this obscure basis for six years, at which point it was taken over by another company. I might test your guesswork again, David, and ask you who you think might have carried it out then. This bit, I have to confess, I did actually read. This goes to Greensill himself and his company. That's right. So it goes to Greensill Capital. And in this instance, there was some more transparency, but in due course, having been doled out directly to Greensill's former employer, who'd been lobbying for the scheme, it then gets handed out to Greensill's own financial services company.
0: Now we move on a little bit. So. Greensill has limited success and then presumably leaves and is working full-time for his own company. So at what point does he exit number
1: 10? Greensill's roles and responsibilities evolve in the period that follows. So between 2012 and 2013-14, he is now what the Cabinet Office describes as a supply chain finance advisor... This role, I think it's been implicit, but I should say explicitly, was never announced publicly or indeed even internally. But then thereafter, I think in 2014, he becomes a crown representative, which was a scheme created by the coalition government, which sort of formalised business person's status as an advisor to government. It basically meant they could come in and kind of, as somebody who was meant to be there, give the government ideas on how to run the show more effectively. So he's a Crown representative up until 2016 when Cameron leaves government. Quite what he does in that period, I don't know. It does seem to have been more a way for him to gold plate his CV as he went out and courted investors for Greensill Capital. In 2017, he is nominated for a CBE for services to the economy by Jeremy Hayward, the the latter detail we revealed on Sunday. And it is thereafter that he hires David Cameron. Digest
0: that one. Having been brought into number 10 by Cameron's top civil servant, not long after leaving that role, Lex Greensill hires that same David Cameron to work for his company, Greensill Capital. And that begins a whole new chapter of this story of power, money, lobbying and failure. On Monday, we'll find out what David Cameron did for Lex Greensill and what it all says about how our government works, as well as hearing what those involved in the story have to say about it.
1: Cameron, I mean, he's only 54 now, so he's also got a life to live and decades left on this planet and needs to make some money. So he adjudicated, and it was in that context that he, in 2018, joined Lex Greensill's company as an advisor and was given share options at one point worth tens of millions of pounds. Basically, Greensill becomes the primary vehicle through which Cameron makes his post-Number 10 money. You've been listening
0: to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Whitehall correspondent Gabriel Pogrand. You can read all of Gabriel's reporting on Lex Green, still at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producers were Edward Drummond and Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Volkan Kisseltug. If you have a story you think we should be covering for a future episode or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to at the times.co.uk. See you on Monday for part two. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.